2: Hi, I'm Vanessa
1: Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures, formerly known as Remarkable Lives, Tragic Deaths. Every Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them.
2: Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts.
1: Today, we're taking a look at the life of Marie Curie, the woman who discovered radioactivity.
2: Mm. Don't you mean the scientist who discovered radioactivity? Mm,
1: Yes, of course. But being a female scientist at the turn of the 20th century was her biggest obstacle in receiving recognition for her work. Her name was even left out of the original proposal to the Nobel Prize committee when they were considering awarding a physics prize for her discovery.
2: It was assumed that she was just assisting her husband in his work, but it was really the other way around. And even though she and her husband both taught at universities, only he was given the title Professor Curie in the newspapers. Marie has had to settle for Madame Curie even to this day.
1: It is really not fair, is it?
2: Not in the slightest. But don't worry, her second Nobel Prize, this time in chemistry, bears her name alone.
1: That's relief.
2: Marie Curie was no stranger to people believing her to be inferior for one reason or another, whether it was because she was a woman, because she was Polish, or, strangely enough, because she was Jewish. Oh, no, I didn't know she was Jewish. Well, that's the strange thing. She wasn't. People just enjoyed finding new ways to look down on her and her work. Misogyny, xenophobia, and misplaced anti-Semitism would dog her throughout her life and her career but she never let those obstacles get in the way of her pursuit of scientific truth.
1: Maybe that perpetual outsider status was something she got used to from her upbringing in Poland. Marie's family happened to be in the part of Poland controlled by Russia, which was bad news for them. Russians considered Poles inferior, and Russian policy favored stamping out Polish culture in favor of Russian culture wherever possible.
2: Marie's family on both sides were extremely patriotic and her relatives took some big risks in the name of Polish freedom during the big uprisings in 1830 and 1863. In the middle of these romantic battles for Poland's soul, a different sort of romance was blooming.
1: Władysław Skodowska and Bronisława Boguska married in 1860. He was an assistant teacher and she was a girls' school headmistress.
2: Both were members of Poland's lower aristocracy. No land, no house, no money, but plenty of pride.
1: They had five children in five years Zasha, Joseph, Brania, Hela, and in 1867, Maria Solomea Skodowska.
2: The same year, Maria, nicknamed Mania to her family, was born. Władysław got a job as the assistant director of a Russian gymnasium, so Bronislava quit her job at the girls' school to tutor the children until 1871.
1: (coughs) That was the year that Bronislava (laughs) contracted tuberculosis. Joined by her eldest daughter, Zasha, she left for the country to rest and hopefully become cured. Little Manya was only four years old, and there would be entire years where she did not see her mother.
2: That meant that Vladislav had to pick up the slack when it came to raising the children. He read to them from foreign books in four languages and was able to find a lesson for the children to learn in every conversation.
1: By all accounts, Manya was a very bright kid. A favorite family tale features her stepping in to read something her elder sister, Branya, was struggling with. With her family's astonished eyes on her, she burst into tears and said, It's not my fault. It's not Branya's fault. It's only because it was so easy.
2: Władysław instilled a strong sense of patriotism in Manya. She walked by a statue of Tsar Alexander II every day on her way to school. And every day she spat on it.
1: (laughs) That ought to show him. Her school was observed by Russians, but run by Polish teachers and staff, so making sure the students learned about their own culture was the highest priority.
2: Manya knew by her schedule that she would learn about Polish literature during the period marked German studies and about Polish history during her botany class.
1: When the Russian administrators came in to observe classes, teachers often called on Manya, their star pupil, to recite the fake lessons that the class had been learning.
2: But hidden cultural education took a high personal toll on Manya's family.
1: In 1873, Wadislaw was caught giving secret lectures on Polish scientists to his math and physics students, and he lost his teaching position.
2: That meant the family could no longer afford to keep Bronislava in the countryside with Sasha. They came back to live with their family, and once again, it was a full house.
1: A very full house. Vadislav needed to earn money for his family of seven, so he began renting out rooms to students. It started with a couple and grew to be 20 students.
2: Manya had to sleep on the sofa and set the table for breakfast every morning, but at least her mother and sister were home with her, however briefly.
1: The close quarters made disease easy to spread, and both Zasha and Bronislava were infected with typhus. Zasha died in 1874, and Bronislava followed in 1878 after a long and slow decline.
2: Manya was shattered. Her sister's and mother's deaths destroyed her belief in God, and she was left with a deep and lasting depression that would return throughout the rest of her life.
1: Manya's teachers noticed her change in personality, and told Vadiswav that while she was an incredibly talented student, they believed she should be held back a year for her fragile constitution.
2: Vadiswav did not agree, and he had Manya change schools, this time, her teachers were Russians, who clearly looked down on the abilities of their Polish students.
1: Manya responded to this loss of status with insubordination and dry sarcasm. But nevertheless, in 1883, she finished first in her class at age 15.
2: But Manya's Polish teachers may have been right that she needed time to rest. After graduating, Manya had a nervous breakdown and couldn't leave her bed for months.
1: Władysław decided to send her away to a relative's house in the country, where she spent a very happy and relaxed year.
2: Marie said, quote, I have been to a Kulig. Well, that's basically a ball, like a dance. And then she said, quote, You can't imagine how delightful it is, especially when the clothes are beautiful and the boys are well-dressed. My costume was very pretty. But things wouldn't be so easy and carefree when she returned to Warsaw. Back in Warsaw in 1884, 16-year-old Manya was frustrated. She wanted to attend university, but there were a couple of things in her way.
1: The local university didn't accept women, and Władysław's money was all going toward his son Joseph's medical school expenses.
2: Manya and her sister Branya bonded over their shared ambitions to learn at a higher level, and they joined a secret underground Polish women's school known as the Flying University. So named because they couldn't meet for classes at the same place twice in a row.
1: It wasn't accredited, but it kept everyone learning and resisting the normalization of Russian education practices. The sisters also supported themselves in their studies with tutoring jobs on the
2: side. Eventually, Manya realized that neither of them would be able to achieve their goals at this rate. So in 1885, she made a proposal to Branya. Manya would work to pay for Branya's travel to Paris, and she would continue to support Branya's education there while she was in school. Once Branya was done, she would have to do the same for Manya.
1: After a tearful thank you, Branya agreed. For the first time, it seemed to Manya that she had a real and tangible future in academia.
2: Manya supported herself and her sister by taking jobs as a governess and tutor. She would teach the children of moneyed families for her pay, and in her off hours she would teach the local peasant children how to read and write Polish and pursue her own studies.
1: In 1886, everything seemed to be going according to plan. Manya was respected by her employers, the Zorowskis. She enjoyed teaching their three youngest children, and she formed a friendship with the eldest daughter of the family.
2: But everything changed when their eldest son, Casimir, returned from Warsaw University. Manya and Casimir quickly fell in love.
1: It was the first time Manya had been in love, and it only took the two a season to decide they wanted to marry.
2: But things didn't go well when they tried to tell Casimir's parents. They disparaged Manya's need to work for pay and told Casimir that they would disinherit him if he married her.
1: Casimir realized that he needed his parents to keep paying for his education. He asked Manya to wait until he could convince his parents to approve of the marriage. So Manya waited, continuing the now humiliating work for his family.
2: But Vladislav came through for his family. He took a position as the head of a reform school in 1888, which came with enough money that Manya could quit her job. She left and came back to live with her father.
1: She continued to wait for Casimir to stand up to his parents, growing depressed all the while.
2: She nearly abandoned her dream of going to Paris to study. Marie said, I dreamed of Paris as of redemption, but the hope of going there left me a long time ago. But then, a final meeting with Casimir in 1891 got her spirits back up again.
1: Her spirits for research, not romance. Manya dumped Casimir, unable to wait for him to grow up and make a stand for their love.
2: Marie said, quote, If you can't see a way to clear up our situation, it is not for me to teach you.
1: And she swore never to let love get in the way of her dreams again.
2: Meanwhile, Branya graduated from the Sorbonne with her medical degree, one of three women in a thousand-student program. Soon after, she married a Polish emigre doctor, also named Casimir, and they opened a practice together. This allowed Branya to finally bring her sister to Paris in 1891, seven years after they made their original deal.
1: This was when Manya adopted the French version of her name and became known as Marie.
2: Marie registered for her first classes at the Sorbonne in 1891. She lived with her sister, Braña, and Branya's husband, Casimir, for the first few months in Paris, but she found the environment too loud and jovial, and she was annoyed by her sister's reminders to eat. So she looked for a chance to move out as soon as she could.
1: Soon she moved into the first of her garret apartments, known for their small size and lack of heating, but she found the solitude invigorating
2: she also doesn't seem to have minded the solitude of her studies. When she began school in 1891, she was one of 23 women in the School of Sciences. By the end of the summer, she was one of two.
1: And that's out of how many students total in the science school?
2: Two thousand. Oh, wow. And in 1893, she graduated with top honors in the exam for science. She literally got the highest grade. It was a disappointment for her in 1894 when her math exams came back and she only got the second highest grade in her year, but still, she had two degrees and was ready to start looking for a place to conduct her graduate research. One of
1: her professors, Gabriel Lippmann, known for his contributions to the development of color photography, gave her space in his lab to study magnetism. But the space was limited and the instruments imprecise. Marie was getting frustrated, until a friend of Braunya's mentioned a scientist who might have the lab space for Marie to continue her studies.
2: While Braunya's friend was incorrect, the scientist in question had barely any space for his own work, let alone anyone else's. The scientist still met with Marie and convinced her to work with him on the basis of the -the state-of-the-art equipment that he had access to, much of which he had invented himself or with the help of his brother. His name was Pierre Curie. And he was already making a splash in the scientific world. By this point, Pierre had formulated Curie's Law, a principle of symmetry in magnetic fields that would help lead to the development of sonar, mobile phones, and ultrasounds.
1: Along with his brother Jacques, Pierre also pioneered the study of piezoelectricity, or the electric charge given off by crystals when compressed. The brothers took a particular interest in quartz crystals and used them to build the precise measuring equipment that attracted Marie to Pierre's lab.
2: But that wasn't the only attraction in play. After their first meeting in 1894 in one of Marie's garret apartments, Pierre came away impressed with Marie's focus and dedication. And Marie was, quote, Struck by the expression of his clear gaze and by a slight appearance of carelessness in his lofty stature, his rather slow, reflective words, his simplicity, and his smile, at once grave and young, inspired confidence. Pierre agreed to give Marie access to his machines.
1: Marie changed Pierre's opinions on women when he was young he viewed them as a distraction something that would keep him and men like him from achieving
2: their potential but Marie was different Marie energized Pierre made him want to do more achieve more and he recognized that this was because of her own dedication and brilliance it didn't take long for him to fall in love with her and realize he wanted to marry her
1: it took Marie a lot longer to come to the same
0: conclusion
2: Our story will continue in a moment after the break.
0: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be.
1: And now, back to historical figures.
2: Marie had never planned to stay in France. She wanted to go back to Warsaw once she had her doctorate, be with her family, and further Poland's contribution to the scientific world. She saw Pierre as a distraction, though she assured him that they would always be friends.
1: But Pierre was persistent.
2: When Marie left for Warsaw for the summer, Pierre felt betrayed. Before she left, he demanded, quote, promise me that you will come back. If you stay in Poland, you can't possibly continue your studies. You have no right to abandon science now. Marie's response was, Quote, I believe you are right. I should like to come back very much. All through the summer, Pierre wrote her love letters. Marie softened, but confessed to Bronya that she preferred it when Pierre spoke of his research than when he spoke of love.
1: Pierre made it clear that he would move to Poland with her if that was where she wanted to be. That, along with prodding from Braugna and Pierre's mother, is what convinced Marie to accept Pierre's proposal.
2: Pierre and Marie married in 1895, and they spent their honeymoon on an extended bicycle trip through the French countryside. When they returned to Paris, Marie was much more affectionate toward Pierre than she ever had been before.
1: She was finally in love.
2: After the honeymoon, the Curies moved into an apartment together, and Marie, being the woman in the relationship, was expected to take on all of the domestic duties. At the same
1: time, she continued her research into the magnetic properties of steel, for which her undergraduate paper would receive a Gegner award two years later. She was also taking classes to better understand Pierre's work with crystals, as well as certification courses that she needed in order to teach.
2: And, in the midst of this incredibly busy time, Marie got pregnant. Irene Curie was born in 1897, when Marie was 30 years old. At the time, that was considered late to have a first child.
1: All of a sudden, Marie had to juggle the responsibilities of child care along with her enormous workload. She and Pierre hired help with money they didn't really feel they had, but even so, Marie suffered from postpartum depression and panic attacks.
2: When Pierre's mother passed away in 1897, his father Eugene moved in with the Curies. Finally, with her father-in-law in charge of little Irene, Marie could breathe. The
1: Curie family moved into a house large enough for their growing family, and Marie began searching for a topic for her doctoral thesis. She would be the first woman to pursue a doctorate from the Sorbonne. It was Pierre who would suggest focusing on the newly discovered Becquerel
2: rays. In 1896, Henri Becquerel published a series of papers about a new type of ray that he had discovered. He was interested in the newly discovered X-rays and exploring a possible relationship between these X-rays and phosphorescence, or light that an object throws off without dispersing heat.
1: So, like lightning bugs and fireflies, as opposed to a roaring fire.
2: Exactly. He realized that uranium salts emitted energy in the form of a ray that showed up on a photographic plate, one that had nothing to do with x-rays, but he wasn't sure what they were or what they could mean.
1: So these becquerel rays are what Marie set out to investigate. With Pierre's help, she took 35 days in 1897 to tweak Pierre's equipment to take the measurement she wanted and then to learn how to use the equipment properly.
2: Remember, this is the turn of the 20th century, so this state-of-the-art equipment was put together with wood, glass, wire, glue, not what you'd expect to see in the sensitive equipment of today.
1: They made a vacuum chamber out of plywood and a hand pump. Now that's
2: DIY. Yeah, and the machines were extremely finicky, required exacting concentration, and the work itself was tedious a lesser person would have gotten bored quickly or would have never been able to master the machine.
1: But Marie mastered it and used it to measure the extremely small currents from pulverized uranium to figure out the intensity of the becquerel rays.
2: She went on to measure the intensity of the rays in many other elements as well. For a time, pure uranium was the benchmark. Its becquerel rays were the most intense she had seen.
1: Until she looked at pitchblende. Pitch blend was a mineral and ore that contained some uranium. Once the uranium had been mined from it, pitch blend was sometimes used in pottery.
2: The pitch blend Marie was working with had already had the uranium removed, but it was registering higher-intensity becquerel rays than even the pure uranium. What was happening?
1: Well, She thought it might be a mistake, but measuring and
2: remeasuring the pitch blend showed the same result. She tested other compounds, too, and saw consistently that some of them would register higher-intensity Becquerel rays than any pure elements.
1: Well, there was only one explanation Marie could think of. She was looking at an entirely new element.
2: Marie said, quote, The element is there, and I've got to find it. We are sure. The physicists we have spoken to believe we have made an error in experiment and advise us to be careful, but I am convinced that I am not mistaken. Marie published her seminal paper on how new elements could be discovered by measuring their radioactivity, a term she invented, in April 1898. She theorized that radioactivity was a property of an atom in the same way it was believed that atomic weight was.
1: Remember, this was a time of great scientific discovery, which meant that it was also a time when people didn't know a lot of what we now consider basic scientific knowledge. Scientists still believed that an atom was the smallest unit of matter, which meant that the nature of atoms was still shrouded in mystery.
2: It was also a stressful time for scientists, many of whom were studying the same things and trying to publish the same papers. Marie missed out on being the first to publish her findings on the radioactivity of the element thorium by only three weeks.
1: Around this time, Pierre, frustrated by his own academic roadblocks, abandoned his studies of crystals to help Marie with her work.
2: Together, they used a process called fractionation to distill pitchblende into its most radioactive elements, which measured higher and higher concentrations of radioactivity.
1: And we do mean elements, as in plural. Pitchblende appeared to contain two new radioactive elements, one that behaved like the known element bismuth, while
2: the other behaved more like barium. This work attracted other scientists to the Curie's lab, including Henri Becquerel. He continued to build on Marie's theory of radioactivity as an atomic property, noting that an element's radioactivity didn't change when it was exposed to heat or cold, or whether it was solid, liquid, or gaseous.
1: Becquerel didn't have much respect for Marie, though, preferring to talk to her through Pierre. It annoyed Pierre more than it did Marie.
2: Eventually, Marie distilled the bismuth-like element to 330 times the radioactivity of pure uranium. And she tried to use spectroscopy to prove that this was in fact a new element. Spectroscopy was the process of turning an element into a gas, then using a prism to refract light through that gas.
1: Spectroscopy had already helped scientists confirm several new elements at this point. Each element has a different pattern to it. But Marie's hypothetical element still wasn't pure enough.
2: She went back to the lab and created a distillation that was 400 times as radioactive as uranium, but it still didn't register something new on the spectroscope.
1: But Marie knew she had something, so rather than distilling further, she just decided to publish in July of 1898, and she named this new element polonium, after her beloved homeland.
2: Then she turned her attention to the barium-like element and began her fractionation process on it. In December 1898, once she had gotten it to 900 times the radioactivity of uranium, she raced up to the spectroscope and confirmed a completely new element. This one she named radium, after the Latin word for ray. Wow, 900 times as
1: radioactive as uranium? Isn't that dangerous to be around something that radioactive?
2: extremely dangerous. But they didn't know it at the time. And it would actually be due in part to the Curies that the world would eventually realize just how bad radiation could be for the human body.
1: Mm -mm. Sounds like this story has a happy ending. Uh, But for now, Marie was thrilled. And so was the world of physics. A new way to discover
2: and identify atoms and elements had been proven to work. The chemists of the world, however, had their doubts. Marie still hadn't produced a large enough quantity of a pure or nearly pure form of the elements she'd claimed to have discovered, something that they could touch or weigh.
1: While Pierre focused on the physics side of radioactivity, the whys and hows behind its occurrence, Marie turned to a time-consuming attempt to isolate pure radium salts.
2: She predicted that pure radium would be several hundred times more radioactive than pure uranium.
1: The Curies applied to the Sorbonne for a lab, but they were denied. Pierre's workplace, the EPCI, or in English, the Industrial School of Physics and Chemistry, didn't have available labs, but offered the Curies a huge hangar to work in.
2: Pierre made an arrangement with the Austrian government to purchase the pitchblende residue that was left over after mining for uranium at incredibly low prices. They sent literal tons of the stuff— Austria thought the Curies were doing them a favor.
1: So, with the workspace and the materials obtained, Marie spent the next four years from 1898 to 1902 shrinking that pitch blend down from several tons to 1 50th of a teaspoon.
2: She boiled it, put it through chemical watches, distilled it further with fractionations, measured the results, and continued fractionating. For every ton of pitch blend, Marie would need 50 tons of rinsing water to distill it to 50 times the radiation level of pure uranium.
1: And six months in, Pierre began to worry about Marie's health. She was working day and night on her quest for radium salts, sometimes forgetting to eat or sleep. So even though they didn't have the money, he hired an assistant, André de for Marie.
2: In order to support their research, both Pierre and Marie eventually had to get professorships and teach, sometimes at schools with a commute as long as an hour and a half one way.
1: But it was worth it to both of them, and their love for one another really shined through during this period, which they would both later call the happiest time of their lives.
2: Marie said, quote, "'I have the best husband one could dream of. "'I could never have imagined finding one like him. "'He is a true gift of heaven. And the more we live together, the more we love each other. That wasn't the only thing in their lives that was shining. After three years of working with what had began as eight tons of pitch blend, nearly everything in their hangar lab glowed.
1: Pierre developed rheumatism, and Marie lost a frightening amount of weight. Many of their friends worried about them.
2: But they didn't stop until 1902, when Marie had totally isolated one-tenth of a gram of radium salts made of pure radium chloride.
1: Marie's prediction that radium salts were hundreds of times more radioactive than pure uranium was quickly proved false. Oh,
2: it was less reactive?
1: Mm, not by a long shot.
2: So, was it a thousand times as radioactive? Ten thousand? A hundred thousand?
1: Try over ten million times as radioactive.
2: She defended her doctorate in 1903, the first woman in France to do so. Her paper was called, in English, Research on Radioactive Substances, and outlined all of her findings from the previous five years.
1: Also in 1903, the combined work of Curie and Bacquerel was up for a Nobel Prize in physics.
2: But it wasn't Marie Curie the scientists of the nominating committee left her out of the proposal entirely, choosing instead to honor all of Pierre's hard work.
1: It was only because Pierre told them that he would not accept the award as is, that the committee realized they needed to acknowledge Marie.
2: But even though each person who wins a Nobel Prize is supposed to receive the same amount of prize money, Pierre and Marie were forced to split a single winner's sum.
1: Interestingly, the 1903 prize was only for the research into radioactivity, making no mention of the results of that research, the discovery of polonium and radium. It was assumed this would be saved up for a future nomination for a Nobel Prize in chemistry.
2: Equally interesting is that the Curies were the first to decline the trip to Sweden to receive the award. Marie had recently suffered a miscarriage and was in full depression, unable to leave the house at the time. She said, quote, I had grown so accustomed to the idea of the child that I am absolutely desperate and cannot be consoled.
1: The only thing that got Marie out of bed was news that some scientists doubted her findings, believing that her discoveries of radium and polonium were compounds instead of pure elements. She would spend the next two years proving them wrong.
2: Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message.
1: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
2: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in-between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: And now let's continue our story.
2: After their 1903 Nobel Prize win, The Curies were now France's most famous scientists. The Sorbonne created a new position for Pierre, the science chair, and he became a member of the Academy of Sciences.
1: Marie started working with an investor who provided her with a large and well-stocked lab in return for her processing radium for him.
2: Because radium was the newest fad, radium was promoted around the Western world as a quick-fix cure-all, and it was found in everything from chocolates to cough drops.
1: This annoyed the curious who cared much more deeply about how radium could revolutionize the field of medicine.
2: They tested radium's use in curing lupus, tuberculosis, and blindness, but it didn't seem to have much effect. Pierre hoped that it would one day be able to cure cancer.
1: In Russia, scientists began trying to use radium to treat internal tumors, but it was so expensive that scientists had trouble affording the trials, let alone patients affording the treatment.
2: So the Curies began loaning out their own radium salt samples to scientists around the world in the hopes of creating a better understanding of how radium could benefit the world. Well,
1: if you're wondering why other scientists couldn't just make their own, well...
2: Once the world knew about how scientists could extract radium from pitchblende, and with radium in high demand for quack cures, Austria realized they were sitting on a gold mine.
1: Well... A radium mine. So the Austrian government created a lab for processing pitchblende and cut off the rest of the world from it. Except for the Curies. That's right. From 1904 to 1906, the only people outside of Austria who could even get a hold of pitchblende were the Curies. It took Pierre and Marie until 1905 to finally travel to Sweden to give their Nobel Prize speech, and it was clear that they were not well. It had taken three months for them to rally their strength, which was slowly being eroded by their dangerous daily proximity to all that radioactivity.
2: Only Pierre was asked to speak, but he used this as the opportunity to sing Marie's praises.
1: He also spoke about the potential dangers of radium publicly for the first time, specifically about how radium and radioactivity in general could be weaponized.
2: After their visit to Sweden, the Curies summered in Normandy with Marie's sister, Hella. Their health, especially Pierre's, was a huge worry.
1: He was limping due to severe pain in his legs. His back hurt badly enough that he couldn't sleep, and neither of them knew what the problem was.
2: Marie said, quote, My husband is very tired. He can't go on walks, and we pass our time studying memoranda of physics and mathematics when they returned to Paris, Pierre went back to work with single-minded determination. But for the first time, Marie wasn't as interested in her work.
1: She was busy with their new baby, Yves Curie, born on December 6, 1904. And she wanted to spend more time with her family.
2: And the worse Pierre's illness grew, the more she wanted to take time with their children and the more Pierre wanted to work. It led to some arguments between the couple.
1: On April 18, 1906, Pierre and Marie got into a fight when Pierre insisted that Marie go with him to the lab that day, but she wanted to go for a walk with Irene.
2: Pierre left, the matter still unresolved, to meet some fellow scientists for a luncheon.
1: He was still limping from the radiation damage to his legs, and he wasn't paying attention to where he was walking.
2: Pierre tripped into the street in front of a horse cart. The horses reared, and Pierre went under.
1: His head was crushed by the back wheel of the cart. He was 46, and he left behind an 8-year-old daughter and an 18-month-old daughter.
2: As well as the 38-year-old love of his life, Marie. She heard the news when she came back from that walk with Irene, the one Pierre and Marie had argued over. She was devastated.
1: Eve Curie later wrote of her mother that, From the moment when those three words, Pierre is dead, reached her consciousness, a cape of solitude and secrecy fell upon her shoulders forever. Madame Curie, on that day in April, became not only a widow, but at the same time a pitiful and incurably lonely woman.
2: Pierre's name was never allowed to be spoken in the Curie house again.
1: But it could be written. Marie began a diary that she addressed to him. The two of them had an interest in spiritualism, or the trendy belief in human communication with the spirits of the dead, and she clung to it.
2: Marie said, quote, We put you into the coffin Saturday morning, and I held your head up for this move. We kissed your cold face for the last time. Then a few periwinkles from the garden on the coffin, and the little picture of me that you called the good little student that you loved. End quote. But the best thing she could do to honor Pierre was to return to the work that had helped their love blossom, which she did once he was buried. She threw herself into it like it was the only thing that mattered to her anymore.
1: The first thing she did was finish his work on a 600-page tome about radioactivity and how it could permeate nearby substances that would later be published as Works of Pierre Curie, with Marie's lovingly written introduction.
2: She was appointed to Pierre's position as science chair at the Sorbonne.
1: Her first lecture in November 1906 was attended by hundreds, hoping to hear her speak on Pierre's passing. Instead, she picked up right from the point where his lectures had stopped.
2: And she was finally able to create the fractionation of polonium that proved its existence in the spectroscope.
1: Marie's lab became the place to get radium certified, and it grew from eight employees in 1906 to 22 employees and 20 female volunteers by 1910.
2: At the meeting of the International Congress of Radiology and Electricity in 1910, Marie shared her personal standard for measuring radioactivity to be used to create an international standard in exchange for the measurement being called a curie.
1: And, in part to silence more doubters, she spent three years from 1907 to 1910 isolating a small square of pure radium after conducting a study on the atomic mass of radium to prove that it was, in fact, the unique element that she had always said it was.
2: She published her findings in two volumes called Treatise on Radioactivity in 1910. At the time, some scientists reacted with what was by now the standard sexist jealousy, saying that they expected her findings to be undermined by new discoveries in the next few years.
1: But her treatise is still regarded as one of the most accurate early accounts of radioactivity, and she was basically correct on her measurement of the atomic mass of radium, with her answer falling within the standard deviation that she presented.
2: And she began to work with the Pasteur Institute to create a radium institute on their campus. This while the Nobel Committee was considering her discoveries of polonium and radium for a second prize, this time in chemistry.
1: Things were going well in Marie's scientific life, but her personal life was a little more complicated.
2: Her relationship with her daughters had turned after Pierre's death.
1: Irene was only eight when Pierre died, And she had frequent nightmares about Marie dying, too.
2: Irene's biggest comfort was her grandfather, Pierre's father, Eugene. He was her primary caretaker. Marie's schedule didn't leave her a ton of time to watch the children, especially with Pierre gone.
1: And Marie never realized how hard Pierre's death hit Irene. Neither would she realize how hard Irene took Eugene's death in 1910.
2: The girls, as they grew up, both tried very hard to please their mother and to bring her joy, but Marie was outwardly distant and cold after Pierre.
1: They also knew that her work took priority over everything else. One of Eve's earliest memories is Marie fainting to the floor from exhaustion.
2: Irene reminded Marie of Pierre, both in terms of temperament and of scientific and scholastic inclinations. She was allowed to teach her fellow students for their math and science classes, and she passed her baccalaureate at 14 with examinations a year and a half later.
1: Eve was a curiosity to Marie. Eve was more interested in the arts and had a true talent for music. Marie purchased a grand piano for Eve to practice on, proud of her daughter's talent. But Eve wasn't able to participate in the high-minded scientific discussions that Marie and Irene would often have.
2: And in 1910, Marie's social life, as well as that of her daughter's, took a turn for the worse.
1: Paul Langevin had been a student of Pierre's and was among the friends who comforted Marie after Pierre's death.
2: But by 1910, that relationship had turned into an affair.
1: Which wouldn't have been an issue, except that Langevin was married. When Langevin's wife Jean found out, the affair became on again, off again, as Marie and Langevin tried and failed to stay away from each other.
2: Jean threatened to kill Marie and threatened to go public. Marie advised Langevin how best to dump Jean. Langevin left each of them for various amounts of time, but couldn't stay away from either.
1: It all came to a head when it was announced that Marie had won the 1911 Nobel Prize in Chemistry.
2: That was when Jean decided to go public with the love letters that Marie and Langevin had written to one another over the course of their relationship.
1: The French press and the French people turned on her, inundating her with misogynistic, xenophobic, and anti-Semitic insults, telling her she should go back to Poland. They even threw stones at her house.
2: And the scientific community wasn't much better. Many of her friends refused to speak to her, Though their wives and daughters were usually sympathetic to Marie, they thought she was being unfairly attacked by the news.
1: I mean, did anyone demand that
2: Langevin leave the country? Right? Nope. It was a horrible double standard. Marie was even asked by the Nobel Committee not to accept her prize. All for something that happened in her personal life? Yep. Ridiculous, isn't it?
1: But her fare had nothing to do with her scientific achievement. The Nobel Prize isn't a popularity contest or a moral superiority award.
2: That's just how Marie felt, which is why she accepted the award in person. Marie said, quote, the prize has been awarded for the discovery of radium and polonium. I believe that there is no connection between my scientific work and the facts of private life.
1: Yeah, good for her.
2: Mm-hmm. When she got back to France in late 1911, Marie entered a deep depression. She may have been suicidal, and when she was rushed to the hospital for what looked like kidney disease, she thought she would die.
1: Marie stayed on the down low for a year after that, not even allowing her daughters to live with her for fear that they would get caught up in her bad reputation.
2: They lived in Paris with a Polish governess and under the watchful eye of Marie's faithful friend André de Bern, and Marie only visited under a pseudonym. She saw them at least twice during this time, both while Eve was ill.
1: Finally, Marie collected her daughters and went to stay with a family friend in England. She was able to relax and recover with her daughters tending to her.
2: She came back to France later in 1913 and by 1914 was overseeing the final stage of construction on the Curie Pavilion in the Pasteur Institute. It felt like things were getting back to normal.
1: Cue World War I.
2: In 1914, Marie, dreading the thought of her precious radium falling into the hands of evil, smuggled all of the radium out of Paris in a lead or lead-lined suitcase.
1: She then returned to Paris and looked for ways she could contribute to the war effort without upping the body count.
2: Marie was a lifelong pacifist and wanted to find ways to save lives instead of ending them, so she found a way to help hundreds of thousands of soldiers on the battlefield.
1: Using X-ray equipment from abandoned labs, Marie rigged up the first mobile X-ray units in 1914 to help soldiers and doctors in field hospitals.
2: Marie drove to these field hospitals, set up the equipment, and operated them herself, helping doctors understand what was going on in the bodies of their patients before they ever had to make a cut.
1: This would become a family business. When Irene was 17, Marie taught her how to operate the machinery and how to drive.
2: Then she left Irene in charge of the entire field radiology facility in 1915 as Marie went off to train other women to use her mobile x-ray units.
1: Irene became the collaborator that Marie had so missed ever since Pierre's death.
2: They went on to train hundreds of women in how to use the x-ray machines while leaving the repair to themselves.
1: In the middle of everything, Irene still found time to enroll in classes at the Sorbonne and graduate with degrees in three subjects before the end of the war.
2: In 1918, Marie and Irene were working together when they started to hear the cheers from the soldiers. The war was over. Together with the women they had trained, the Curies were responsible for over one million X-rays performed during the war. Irene
1: became Marie's assistant, and Marie was offered a small pension by the French government. She accepted.
2: And it wasn't long before Marie became a favorite of the press again.
1: This time, though, the press was in the United States.
2: Marie lamented not having as much radium to work with in Paris as scientists did in other labs around the world, specifically in the US. It was because she didn't profit off of radium as an entity, even though it was her discovery. She never intended to either. Marie said, quote, Radium was not to enrich anyone. Radium is an element, it belongs to all people.
1: A female American magazine editor heard about Marie's dilemma and offered to raise money to purchase a gram of radium for Marie in 1920.
2: The only catch was that Marie would have to go on tour in the States to accept it.
1: Marie agreed, though she didn't really think the money would come
2: through. To her surprise, it did. The editor raised over $100,000 by saying that Marie needed the radium to create a cure for cancer.
1: And so Marie set off on her American speaking tour in 1921. Will all of the press instructed to say absolutely nothing in the papers about the Langevin affair if they wanted a chance to speak with Madame Curie herself.
2: Marie captured the American imagination, especially that of young women who felt inspired by her.
1: Along with her radium sample and speaking fees, Marie was also awarded a book contract. She used it to publish a short book in 1923 called Pierre Curie about the life and work of her husband.
2: But the book mainly functioned as a propaganda piece to raise even more money for Marie's work. The introduction focused on Marie, and much of Pierre and Marie's life together was romanticized.
1: She eventually came back to the United States in 1929 to collect a second gram of radium after a similar fundraising effort, only days before the stock market crash.
2: But Marie did what she said she would with the money, and she and Irene began to look at standardizing radium treatments.
1: In 1925, Frederick Joliot began working as an assistant at Marie's lab. Within the year, he and Irene were engaged.
2: Marie wasn't excited about the possibility of losing her favorite collaborator to love. She was also worried about Irene's inheritance and made sure that the Radium Institute and its radium would belong to Irene even if she and Frederick divorced.
1: French inheritance laws back then definitely favored the husbands over the wives.
2: Marie also pushed her new son-in-law to receive a bachelor's and a doctorate. If he was going to be with Irene, he had better be worth it.
1: And so began the Joliot-Curie family in 1926. Marie became a grandmother in 1927 and again in 1932.
2: That same year, Marie handed over the reins of the Radium Institute, now well-funded, well-known, and well-liked to Irene.
1: Irene and Frederick continued the work that Marie had begun and isolated polonium.
2: They lost out on two chances for Nobel Prizes, but they soon discovered that radioactivity could be artificially induced in certain elements and compounds.
1: Amid all of the doubts from the scientific community came sound advice from Marie. They had to work until they never made any mistakes, so that no scientists could discredit their work. And it paid
2: off. To Marie's joy, they proved the existence of artificial radioactivity, and they would go on to win the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for it in 1935.
1: Irene was the second woman after her mother to win a Nobel Prize.
2: But Marie didn't live to see it happen.
1: Marie had been deteriorating for years. She was practically blind, she had horrible damage to several internal organs, and she was anemic.
2: But she still went into the lab, working hard and working steadily until 1934. She came home from her last night in the lab with a headache and chills.
1: Eve became her nurse as Marie was moved out to a sanatorium in the country, hoping that fresh air would cure her.
2: Her fever went up, but then it broke. Eve was optimistic until Marie fell into a coma.
1: She died on July 4, 1934 from complications that could all be traced back to radiation and x-ray exposure. She was 66.
2: She was buried beside Pierre, though in 1995 they were both moved to the Pantheon in Paris, a church that contains the remains of France's most prominent citizens. Marie was the first woman to be interred there on her own merit. Marie's work became the basis for things as wide-ranging as the atom bomb to modern radiation therapy treatments for cancer.
1: And to this day, she remains the only woman who has ever won two Nobel Prizes and the only person to have won Nobel Prizes for two different sciences.
2: While Marie Curie's story is all about working hard, overcoming obstacles, and coming out on top, it's important to recognize that she's an outlier. There's so many others whose stories will never be told because they weren't allowed recognition for their work or even to begin their work in the first place.
1: Society is at its best when everyone's allowed to participate. Marie Curie knew it and spent her whole life fighting
2: for it. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Historical Figures.
1: If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Historical Figures, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com. A new episode drops every Wednesday, but if you subscribe, you don't have to remember that.
2: If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
1: It seems simple, but it really helps our show.
2: We'll see you next time. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro with production assistance by Joel Stein. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Dana Shaw and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy.